electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Tyler Matheson, in for Brian Sullivan, and right now on Last Call, Bitcoin on a relentless tear. So why is this rally's FOMO apparently MIA? And battle for the chip crown, NVIDIA feels the heat as AMD unveils a new AI chip. We'll hear from AMD's CEO. And speaking of AI, Google throws a haymaker at ChatGPT, launching its AI rival. How's it stand up to the competition? We'll show you. Despicable, a top CEO lashes out at Ivy League leaders after controversial testimony to Congress. Running the table, Florida achieves a landmark in the push to expand gaming. We'll head live to the state's most iconic casino. From Golden Arches to outer space, why McDonald's is looking to the stars and booming Nashville. We'll take you inside one of America's hottest cities and the super luxe hotels racing to keep up. That and much more, Last Call is up right now. Good evening here, good afternoon out west, and welcome. First up on Last Call, your money, because there is something happening in the energy and bond markets that could spell trouble for stocks and maybe the economy. Oil sank below $70 a barrel today. Now, that's its lowest level in five months. Meantime, interest rates continue to, yes, fall. The 10-year Treasury dropped to about 4.1%, its yield, that is, and that happened today. That is the lowest level in three months. Remember, it was floating above 5% just two months ago. All this comes as stocks have been on a tear this year. The Dow and S&P 500 hit new 2023 highs just last week. But it's not all rosy on the economic front as two CEOs ring the alarm on the state of the consumer. The first, Walmart CEO Doug McMillan. You know, I don't know what next year is going to look like as credit balances go up. The, the balance sheet of the consumer is not as in good a shape as it was six or 12 months ago or a year ago. And the second, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy, just moments ago. Consumers are still spending. Uh, they're, they're being careful about what they spend on, and they're looking for bargains and deals wherever they can and wherever they can trade down on price. They're trying to do so. And so which brings up an important question. Do the declines in rates and oil prices signal a slowing economy and then maybe potential trouble for your money? Let's talk about that with our leadoff panel tonight. Solus Alternative Asset Manager's Chief Strategist Dan Greenhouse and Sand Hill Global Advisors Chief Investment Officer Brenda Vingello. Thank you both for joining Last Call tonight. Let's begin with you, Brenda. Is falling oil prices in any sense a bad thing for the market? Is it a bad sign for the economy? I don't think it is at this stage of the game. I mean, if we think about the impact from falling oil prices, certainly positive for the consumer, 
positive for the outlook for inflation and its trajectory. Of course, first we'll hear about it on the headline side, but if oil prices stay where they're at, we'll start to see more impact um, from core inflation improving. Uh, so I don't think it's as negative as, as maybe it's made out to be. Um, certainly not great for oil producers, although most of the major oil producers that are listed in the S on the S in the S&P 500 uh, have break-evens that are well below uh, $70 a barrel. So I don't see this as a negative. I see it as an overall positive, not only for the U.S. economy, but for the global economy that really has been suffering with uh, a slowdown in China. Um, and higher inflation. So I think this could be a positive. I suppose, Dan, falling oil prices would be a negative if the problem was falling demand. Do you see it as a, as a reflection of declining demand, or do you see these lower prices as a reflection of ample supplies? Well, it's definitely not demand, and, and that's not my opinion. I mean, we can, this stuff is measured, and, and this year, in total, global oil demand is going to be up somewhere around 2 million barrels a day. So demand hasn't been a problem. Uh, and the issue, from as far as I can tell, is it's largely supply, as you alluded to. The U.S. is producing 13 million barrels of oil. I mean, obviously, exponentially more when you include liquids in general. We're exporting basically a record amount of oil. And so I think in conjunction with the rest of the world producing uh, at, at pretty decent levels, uh, the U.S. continues to march higher. And so the combination of, of pretty healthy demand and a decline in supply has been, and, and an increase in supply has been pressuring prices. And to your point, that more than anything else is not necessarily a negative at all. Dan, do you expect, however, and in other words, despite what's going on in oil here, you don't think it's a problem of demand. Do you think the economy is in a kind of gradual slowing mode, if not, if not necessarily headed for a recession? Well, the economy is definitely slowing, although we have to caveat that by noting that we just grew 5% in the third quarter. So almost by definition, you're going to slow. But to the point you've got with along uh, with falling oil prices, you've got uh, the, the, the average price of gasoline throughout the country now down to 320. That was just recently close to four. Uh, I know, obviously, you mentioned uh, Walmart and Amazon. But just uh, yesterday at a, at a sell-side conference, the CEO of Capital One said that the U.S. consumer was in a, quote, strikingly good place. And I think the card companies in general have, have echoed that sentiment over the last couple of weeks in, in conferences and, and from reporting. So I think on balance, the economy is definitely slowing down uh, and the consumer is still holding in there, which is probably going to continue being the case uh, as long as the labor market continues to hold well, up. Linda, why are interest rates declining? Well, I think there's been this um, huge shift in sentiment, right, with the whole market now expecting that the soft landing scenario is an inevitability uh, and, and rates are coming down in anticipation of rate cuts next year, which I think could be a little bit premature. I mean, we'll see how things shake out um, and we'll get some more data over the course of the next week with the non-farm payroll on Friday and then another CPI report on Tuesday of next week. But in our view, uh, the Fed is likely to keep rates where they're at uh, for an extended period of time. And maybe in the second half of last year is when we'd get our next year, excuse me, we'd get our first rate cut. Uh, but I, I do think the move down in, in rates, it just has been pretty stunning from 5% all the way down to 4.1 in a very short period it's of been time. A, it's been a really quick decline, Brenda, in, in those rates. And, and I wonder what you think is going to happen next year. In other words, is the economy, as, as Dan says, going to continue to slow because, number one, you're not going to have the same amount of fiscal stimulus. Number two, the effect of those higher rates over the past couple of years are still 
going to be trickling through the system. Bonds that have to roll over are going to have to roll over at higher interest rates. What do you say, Brenda? Yeah, I think that if rates stay where they're at uh, through the first half of next year, which we think is likely, that we are going to see more evidence of the impact of higher rates. And as you said, you know, we have over five and a half trillion dollars of global corporate bonds that are maturing next year that are going to need to be refinanced at higher rates. Just the longer rates stay where they're at, the the more that those who have been holding out and haven't been taking on loans are going to need to, or it's just going to be an ongoing environment where projects that probably made sense uh, sometime over the last decade in this largely a zero interest rate environment that we've been in just don't make sense anymore. So projects aren't going to be getting done. Uh, so I think eventually that will all have an impact of, of serving to slow the economy in the, some form. So I don't Dan, think we'll necessarily have a recession, but it'll slow. It, it feels to me, I think Brenda might agree, the idea here is that rates are coming down in part uh, in anticipation that rates may come down even more next year and that the Fed may cut rates uh, sometime next year. Is that what you are anticipating? In other words, that the Fed gets into the rate cutting game, and if so, how soon? How often? Yeah, listen, I think somewhere around the middle of the year, you can start having a real conversation about whether you want to preemptively reduce rates. I don't think the economy is going to weaken enough in the first half of the year to warrant uh, a meaningful reduction in rates. The economy should be okay. Uh, while, the, while the labor market is probably going to continue weakening, I don't know that traditionally it would be to a point where you would want an aggressive rate cutting cycle. But to, to Brenda's point, We've already started to see some of the deleterious effects of the increase in rates. Consumer delinquency and charge-off rates have already on credit cards have already started to normalize, both at the macro level in the Fed data and from the companies themselves, Capital One, Discover, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, so, so by the middle of next year, you can probably start ha having a conversation, but I don't think there's any guarantee of that. If the economy holds in there next year, they might want to go as long as they possibly can without reducing rates for fear of fueling not necessarily a resurgence in inflation, because I think that's less of a risk, but rather a risk on sentiment that they think. So quick answer from both of you, as I conclude here, we talk about falling rates, falling oil prices, a problem for stocks, yes or no? Dan, you first. No, uh, to borrow a phrase from the Bachelorette, uh, right now they're falling for the right reasons. Brenda, the same to you. I don't think they're a problem either right here and now. Certainly yeah. is fueling a lot of the re returns that we've seen more recently in stocks. Dan, Dan Greenhouse, Brenda Vingello, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. And meantime, here are your studs and duds of the day. The biggest winner was Slurp It Up, Campbell's Soup. 7.1% higher leading the S&P 500 after an earnings beat. Higher prices helped Campbell's Soup jump past profit expectations. And uh, for the biggest loser, beverage giant Brown Foreman down 10.4%. The parent of Jack Daniels and Woodford Reserve seeing whiskey sales fall at CEO saying that drink demand is normalizing after spiking during the pandemic. Up next, AMD and Nvidia's epic rivalry cranks up a new chip unveiled in the AI arms race. We're going to hear from the AMD CEO next. Plus, McDonald's like you've never seen it before. Think aliens, really? Stay with us. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Next, go give it to you. How about that? 
That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome back to Last Call. Moving now to chips and AI. The chipmaker AMD rolling out its latest AI chip models. And CNBC's Christina Partzinevelis sat down with AMD's CEO with a look at the new technology. Christina. Well, AMD launching two versions of their AI chips today. The X version which is for cloud users, and the A version for supercomputers, as well as next-generation open-source software, which they hope to compete with NVIDIA. CEO Lisa Su taking to the stage today to say that the market is growing so much faster than anticipated that that's contributed to the more than doubling of their total addressable market to $400 billion by 2027. That's $400 billion for just AI chips. With that demand, you'd expect a bump in 2024 sales estimates, and I asked Lisa Su that. She said they have more than enough demand to hit that $2 billion sales target next year, but they haven't updated their estimates just yet. Listen in. This market is moving faster than anything that we've seen before, and we've accelerated our roadmap, too, because, you know, we're spending a lot of time with our um, largest customers, and they're saying, hey, MI300 is great. We love it. Now, um, we're also talking about the next generation and the next next generation. The takeaway from Sue and from the analysts I spoke to here is that this market is so big right now, there's enough room for more than one player. That means AMD, NVIDIA, as well as the hyperscalers like AWS or Meta, who are building their own custom chips. Speaking of hyperscalers and cloud players, Microsoft, Meta, Oracle, all took to the stage today to talk about their MI300X partnerships with AMD, which is a good sign, especially since several of them also buy NVIDIA chips. Speaking of NVIDIA, Sue making several direct comparisons to NVIDIA on stage, something she doesn't normally do at these kind of events, to point out that AMD's MI300 chips have more memory bandwidth and capacity, in other words, are more efficient for inferencing. The takeaway, NVIDIA chips are leading for training large language models, like learning all of the material from databases. But AMD aims to dominate the next part of that equation, which is inferencing, aka shooting out the answers to people's questions in chat GPT style. And that's going to be the major competitive advantage for firms in the coming years. Tyler? Christina, thanks very much. It is time now for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you'll be talking about come morning. First up, Bloomberg reporting that Elon Musk's SpaceX tender offer could value the company at $175 billion or more. The deal is not finalized, and SpaceX is weighing offering shares around $95 apiece, according to the Bloomberg sources. Big news there. Next up, Pfizer's CEO denouncing the leaders of Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, and MIT over their congressional testimonies regarding efforts to combat anti-Semitism on college campuses. In a lengthy ex-post, Albert Borla said the testimony, quote, 
was one of the most despicable moments in the history of U.S. academia, unquote. He also said the three presidents hid behind calls for context instead of condemning racist, anti-Semitic hate rhetoric. And finally tonight, McDonald's opening a new spin-off brand. It's called Cosmix. The concept will open in a handful of places in early 2024. The Wall Street Journal's Heather Haddon has more, and she joins us now. Heather, welcome. Good to, uh, good to have you with us. What is Cosmix, and uh, when are we going to expect to start seeing them? Yeah, so this is the first time that McDonald's, in its more than 60-year history, has started its own brand in the U.S. Um, so it's a standalone brand. The first restaurant is opening in a suburb of Chicago uh, later this week. And it has a very different menu. So this is all about beverages. Um, it's about slushes. It's about frappes. It's about teas. And there's a limited food menu, including some classics like egg McMuffins. But otherwise, it's totally unique. Um, and McDonald's talked about it during uh, its investor day today is that they're testing and learning. They're going to see how customers like this as it uh, opens a handful of additional restaurants in its Texas markets next year. And then we're going to see if it will develop more. And it is all drive through. You do not sit down and eat here. So in the, the first prototype, there is no dining room. That's correct. Um, but other formats, um, as they start rolling out these restaurants, could look different. But to go is definitely the focus with this. So it has multiple drive through lanes. Um, it really incentivizes people who order on the app. Um, it also incentivizes right. people who don't pay with cash. So it's all about quick, easy ordering. Emphasis on drinks, beverages, whether sweet or not. Uh, but you said there are some food items. What kind of food items, in other words, and, also, and specifically, what kind of stuff that I would see at a normal McDonald's might I see here? Or is it absolutely different? So there's a handful of items. Um, obviously, egg McMuffins is something that everyone knows, mm. and you can buy those all day at the Cosmic Restaurant. Um, it also has McFlurry, but otherwise, it's really unique items. So it's pretzel pretzel bites, it's sundaes, it's snacks. Uh -huh. um, even have an avocado um, uh, uh, egg product, which maybe people familiar with the avocado toast trend will be. Oh. That's very, that's very she-she right there. Heather, thanks so much for telling us about it. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Heather Haddon of the Wall Street Journal. Coming up later this hour, a sneak preview of CNBC's new special, Cities of Success, Nashville. Carl Quintanilla takes an ultra-luxe tour of one of the hottest hotel markets anywhere. But next, watch out, ChatGPT. Google finally unveils its AI rival to take on OpenAI. Does it have a winner? We'll tell you when we come back. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.
Welcome back to Last Call. A major AI chat bot just got a big upgrade. Google's Bard now powered by a new AI model called Gemini. The company launched it earlier today, Google touting it as the largest and most capable AI model. But will the Gemini upgrade be enough for Bard to knock out the current AI heavyweight champion, Chat GBT. Let's talk about the AI battle royale with our tech panel, The Verge, Deputy Editor Alex Heath, and Deepwater Asset Management Managing Partner Gene Munster. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, we're glad to have both of you with us. Alex, let me begin with what this Gemini engine behind Bard uh, purports to do, and what's it going to make Bard better at doing? Well, right now, if you use BARD, it essentially means that Google claims BARD functions much closer to ChatGPT4, which is the latest version that powers the ChatGPT that everyone uses. So before, it wasn't quite as performant. It wasn't quite as fast, couldn't do quite as much. But it's still inherently a chatbot. It still is only something that you write into. What Gemini really represents and what is coming early next year is this concept in tech called multimodal language models, which essentially means that you can do more than text. You can show it things. A demo that Google showed today was it could identify something on a table and then begin to reason with you. Uh, they showed something like a magic trick. It could figure out a magic trick on a table. So this is AI becoming uh, something that can see and hear, not just something that is text. So Alex, I, I, this apparently just came out today. Have you tried it out? Does it, does it change the experience? Is it better? Because I'll tell you my experience with it that I just tried it the half hour ago. Yeah, it's um, not noticeably, uh, it's, it's not a wow factor yet. I think it will be when this multimodal experience that you can interact with through visuals and audio as well as text comes out later next year. Right now, I would just say that it makes Bard kind of like ChatGPT, but you can have Google real-time results instead of Bing which obviously makes sense with Microsoft being the big partner for ChatGPT. Right. Uh, and Bard, Bard can interact with things like Google Flights and stuff like that too in Gmail, which also makes it unique. I'll tell you and the audience and Gene you, I went in about a half hour ago and I said, Bard, write me a 500 word essay explaining the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it came back, it thought for a few seconds and it came back and it said, uh, this is a, a very uh, fast moving situation, please consult Google. Gene? That didn't, sound, that didn't sound like a win to me. No, it's not a win, but I can say this, that Google investors, present company included, braved the sigh of relief today when we saw this demo that Alex is talking about. I believe the demo that was showed is Gemini Ultra, which is kind of the amped up version. The version that's out today that you played around with mm -hmm. is Gemini Pro. That's the one, and that is a step that doesn't have that bimodal uh, dynamic that Alex was talking about. And so agree with you, Tyler, this is not where it needs to be. But in terms of this, today was a significant day for Google. They have been largely viewed as three steps behind OpenAI yes. and Anthropic. And as again, I think that what they showed today was remarkable. And I would put this ultra again, it's not out yet, but I would put it more advanced than what we have seen with ChatGPT4, just given the fact that it can do that bimodal nature. So uh, to Eugene, this is a game changer for, for Alphabet Google. Potentially. It's, it's a game changer in, in this in this sense, is that there's a debate whether or not Google is able to turn the corner here. There's, uh, I think, a, a reasonable camp that thinks that 
search will be everywhere and Google won't uh, be able to create enough power with their uh, AI that is going to attract users. And it's a game changer in the sense that now they've shown some of their muscle. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is going to, if uh, if they do deliver on what they're showing with Ultra, I think it's going to change the game. It doesn't mean Google is going to be the winner. I think that Google is going to mm -hmm. be one of the, the top mm -hmm. two or three winners. But given the size of the opportunity, that's a pretty good place to be in. So, uh, Alex, am I going to have to pay for this new version? I mean, ChatGPT, the latest, greatest version, uh, charges, what is it, $20 a month? Uh, what, what about this Bard version that has Gemini behind it? Am I going to have to pay for that? Or is it going to be somehow uh, ad supported or whatever? No, it's free. And that's another benefit that Google can bring to this with its sheer scale and resources uh, is that it's going to be free, at least for the foreseeable future. They may add some on, you know, add some paid functionality later on. But I think they see their opportunity as let's leverage the infrastructure we already have, our advertising network, and make this as widely available. I think BART is in something like 170 countries. So it's already more accessible than ChatGPT. Yeah. And just to add to what Gene was saying about the significance for Google as a company, Sergey Brin, Google's co-founder and one of its largest shareholders who's on the board, he is named in the research paper for Gemini. He's been working on it for months. He's back in the building at Google working on Gemini. That's how big a deal Gemini is for Google. Yeah, and I, I must say that I, I used BARD on a prior occasion. I had a very wonderful experience with it. With it. it. It told me what questions to ask Bill Nye, the science guy. So there you go. It was very, it was very good. Alex, uh, great to see you, Gene. Always a, a pleasure to be with you. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. And still ahead, a Bitcoin rally without FOMO? What it means for investors jumping in on Bitcoin's big blast off this year. That's next. Welcome back to Last Call. I'm Tyler Matheson, in tonight for Brian Sullivan. Bitcoin is booming, if you hadn't noticed, surging above $44,000, highest level since early April of 2022. But despite the rally, some still remain unimpressed by crypto. Today, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon expressed his strong and oft-expressed distaste toward the digital currency during a Senate banking committee hearing. I've always been deeply opposed to crypto, Bitcoin, etc. You pointed out the only true use case for it is criminals, drug traffickers, anti-money laundering, tax avoidance. If I was the government, I'd close it down. Close it down, he says. While not everyone shares that view, certainly not, interest in Bitcoin remains relatively low considering its rally. Take a look at this chart. It compares Bitcoin's price to interest in Bitcoin measured by Google Trends. Usually, the two lines move sort of together. Bitcoin goes up and interest follows. But in the last year, Bitcoin has had a strong climb paired with very modest interest increases. Apple's App Store data shows a similar trend. Currently, the Coinbase app, where users buy crypto, manage their portfolios, is ranked 24th among finance apps on the App Store. When Bitcoin hit its record back in October of 2021, Coinbase was number one, top spot overall. So where is the hype and investor interest uh, in this Bitcoin rally? Let's take it to our panel. With us tonight is GLJ Research founder and CEO Gordon Johnson and Delta Blockchain Fund founder and CEO Kavita Gupta. Thank you both for joining us. Gordon, let me begin with you. Where are you on this Bitcoin debate? Are you, are you closer to Jamie Dimon or closer to the uh, Bitcoin uh, fanboys and girls? Look, I, I think I'm even further than Jamie Dimon. I'm going to read from my notes here. 
Crypto is a story of bits of computer code uncorrelated to any real world asset. Effectively, it's a Ponzi. And the reason why I call it a Ponzi is because it is, it's an investment without value, which is the definition of Ponzi. Now, blockchain is 30 years old. See, the, the idea that this is new is just wrong. It goes back to 1991 when Stuart Haberman and Scott Stornetto were working with Bell Labs to build off the work of cryptographers such as David Chong. And they built the blockchain, which is fine. It's a distributed ledger if it's not being used for crime. Now, the reason why I think crypto is rallying is because the Fed is effectively doing quantitative easing right now, real quick. The reverse repo account was built back in 2020 to 2021 when the Fed was doing a lot of QE. All it is is money from the, the massive money printing they did that was laying dormant. They've now dropped that number since the debt ceiling was uh, resolved. The reverse repo account has dropped $1.3 billion. That is why crypto is going up. It's because the Fed is de facto doing quantitative easing right now. But it's not just crypto, it's stocks, et cetera. But overall, mm -hmm. crypto is a Ponzi in our view. Kavita, let me turn to you. I think you probably have a different kind of view there. Let's talk about, and I'd like to hear that different view, but I'd like you also to answer in there where you think the buying is coming from. Gordon thinks it's coming from RRP, reverse repo money. I wonder whether you agree with that or whether you think it is money that is coming in in anticipation of uh, the legalization or, or the approval of um, ETFs for Bitcoin? For sure. I think uh, there are three things which are happening very closely next to each other. The first is the years of FTX, Binance, Clarity has come into the system for a lot of family offices and institutions to really invest in Tyler. The second is, of course, uh, at any given point in December or hopefully by January for sure, it seems like SEC is very close to approving spot Bitcoin ETF, and that's a big one. But also on the technology side, the Bitcoin halving is about to happen in May, which is also going to create a very different dynamics on supply and chain. So there is a lot of institutional and family office anticipation on the first two, but also for the retail people, they have always been in the space. But now with Bitcoin having about to come in May, there's a huge interest in holding Bitcoin and seeing where the price is going to go. Gordon, I do think, uh, go ahead, finish, finish your thought, Kavir. I'm sorry. I do think we're going to see a little bit drop in the price. And going back to what you were saying, where is the interest versus the Bitcoin? I mean, this is just thawing of the market. We are slowly, slowly going, finding a new balance, then going mm -hmm up and not at the all-time high for Coinbase to go to number one yet. I want to come back to Gordon in a moment, but Gordon rolled out the big PS, Ponzi scheme. Kavita, why is Bitcoin not a Ponzi scheme? I mean, how do you describe a Ponzi scheme? I mean, every country currency today is a Ponzi scheme. You're talking about USD, and USD is one of the biggest debt account with debt ceilings years after years increasing to have the power. So tomorrow, if the currency or the U.S. Treasury fail, is the U.S. currency is the big Ponzi scheme based on that definition of security underlining. Gold goes up and down. What is a Ponzi scheme? If everybody tomorrow stop using gold, does gold become a Ponzi scheme? I think Bitcoin is one of the biggest coming out of the Wall Street movement where MBS, ABS and the whole Wall Street completely left us alone. And the whole idea of supply and demand in the true econometric ways is what Bitcoin is. All right, Gordon, your turn. <laughs> yeah, so listen, given it's issued, it's not issued by the state. By definition, it's a private currency. We tried private currencies in the free banking era of the 19th century, 1837 to 1863. It was a massive failure. Why? Because Gordon, there was how fraud. Is it a private currency? So the truth how do you define a private currency? It's not currency? the future. 
Can, can I finish? Bitcoin is not the future. It's the past. We've tried this. Um, it, it, real quick. It's a tech that doesn't solve a problem. It's simply used to speculate. It's not real currency and can't act as one given fixed supply. All cryptos are unregistered securities and private currencies have always been a disaster. Now, with that said, I think given that the Fed is allowing the RRP to, to fall so dramatically, they're literally doing QE on steroids now. Quantitative easing goes straight to banks. What the RRP being worked down is doing is it's funding Janet Yellen's issue of bonds and then she's taking that money and spending it into the private sector via the, the medical space, the insurance space, et cetera. So they're literally putting money into people's pockets right now with core CPI running at two times their target. So that is why Bitcoin is going up. It's not for all these other reasons. When that RRP drain is done, risk assets are going to collapse to include Bitcoin. So we're mm -hmm. actually bullish Bitcoin near term. But to say it's not a Ponzi is a misunderstanding of money in the history think, of money. In our I think the technology behind Bitcoin is a very important one. I have worked all over the world in emerging markets during my World Bank IFC days. I've lived in Africa, Mexico, Colombia, Egypt, Jordan, Syria. And believe me, waking up in those economies when you have no idea when you wake up is one rupee is going to hold or not, one lira is going to hold or not, is a complete different mindset. And that is why when we talk about a peer-to-peer -peer settlement currency like Bitcoin, it's actually a currency of the emerging markets. It's a currency of people that that's their storage value is. And that's why when you go to Africa, when you go to Colombia, when you go to Mexico, you literally have Bitcoin ATMs installed by the government of Colombia. You just talked about it's not a registered security. You talked about the government out there, which is holding Bitcoin next to gold in their treasuries. And I feel like when you're sitting in U.S. But every and time we've tried private currency historically. Let me finish now. Yes, One second. When, Let when Kavita finish. I'll give you the last word, Gordon. Go ahead. Yeah. When we are sitting in a countries where we feel like our economies are safe, we look at currency in a very different manner. I think a Ponzi is a very huge word with the question out there, whether it's just a speculative way. But look at the technology successfully since 2009 to today, 2023. Bitcoin has been written off numerous number of times by calling being called a scam. It's here. And if you want technology, go to blockchain and Ethereum. All right. Last word to you, Gordon, quickly. Yeah, listen, if... The U.S. lost its status as the, as the world's reserve currency. Chaos would break out here. Mm -hmm. Listen, I'm not a fan of Jamie Dimon or banksters. I call them banksters. <laughs> but he is correct. To argue for the falling of the dollar is to argue for the falling of America. So all of those arguing for what I see as this Ponzi Bitcoin and all of crypto, in my view, are really just anti-American if you think about it. All right. Uh, we That's appreciate a big one. <laughs> Right. Not at all. USDC is the biggest among the crypto community. All right. So you'd like the U.S. to fall. We because have to if we lose reserve currency, we will fall as a country. We will have you back. We will pick this up uh, again, I am sure. Kavita, thank you very much. Gordon Johnson, we appreciate you as well. All right. Now, let's get to our quicker than the ticker. All the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Extreme Arctic temperatures freeze swaths of Siberia, the region notorious for the cold, but temperatures in some parts are the most severe they've been in decades, some dropping to minus 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Times person of the year goes to Taylor Swift. Big surprise there. The 33-year-old singer has dominated the headlines this year with her record-breaking tour, the re-release of two albums, and a movie. 
Happy 25th birthday to the International Space Station. The first two elements of the orbital outpost were launched today, back in 1998. The ISS has been visited by 273 people from 21 countries and has grown to the size of an American football field. Look for more Golden Arches. McDonald's announcing it'll open 10,000 new restaurants globally by the end of 2027. Around 900 of them here in the U.S. And movie buffs, listen up. HBO and entertainment production company A24 just signed an exclusive multi-year agreement. Both new and existing A24 films will now be available on Max Streaming and HBO Cable. And coming up, a big new roll of the dice on gambling is happening in Florida, and that's where CNBC's Contessa Brewer is standing by. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Tyler. Tomorrow, a list of celebrities will crowd around these craps tables and roulette wheels across the casino, and the sportsbook will welcome bettors for the first time in two years. I'll explain why Hard Rock really hit the jackpot with this one. That's ahead on Last Call. Welcome back, everybody. Florida is moving to launch expanded gaming and sports betting options at its casinos, which is good news for Hard Rock, one of the state's largest casino operators. CNBC's Contessa Brewer is live at the Hard Rock Guitar Hotel. I've passed it many times in Hollywood, Florida, with Hard Rock International Chairman Jim Allen. Hey, Contessa. Hey there, Tyler. It's nice to see you. And nice to see Jim Allen, who's also the CEO of Seminole Gaming. This is a big win for the tribe after years of court battles and potential challenges from commercial operators who wanted a piece of the gambling action here in Florida. Tomorrow you're gonna roll out craps tables with live dealers and roulette tables. But isn't the attention all on the sports betting? Oh, I think it's both. Certainly the mobile sports conversation is the one that you know, creates the most legal you know, challenge, if you will. But the addition of craps and roulette here at our facilities in Florida is a big day for us. You know, when we look at the international guests coming into South Florida to now be offered the game of roulette is something that's a real addition for us, and we're real excited about it. I've, I've seen estimates from gaming industry insiders that put this market in Florida at between $1.3 billion to potentially as high as $3 billion. Where do you put it? Well, certainly those numbers we have seen. I think when you have the conversation, you have to look at it with solely sports betting, which is the scope that we now legally have available to offer to the general public. But certainly that number gets significantly higher if iGaming is eventually approved in the future. We saw just this week the Chickasaw tribe decided that they would offer iGaming at their Windstar Casino in Oklahoma. It was a bit of a surprise because Oklahoma has not embraced casino games that you play online. Is that a model that the Seminole tribe could follow here in no, Florida? Um, I'm not fully up to speed as to what they're doing, but I think they're using a class two version of that. Um, certainly our goal has been to work directly with the leaders of the state of Florida to offer the same exact scope that you find in any other state in the United States by all the publicly traded companies, You know, whether that be FanDuel or DraftKings or MGM Caesars, et cetera. New York right now is the nation's leader in terms of how much money is wagered on sports. In October of this year, it surpassed $2 billion. Is it possible that Florida surpasses New York? I think it's certainly possible. What's unique about Florida is a state 21, 22 million people, but more importantly, the tax rate is much more competitive here. 
The tax rate in New York is over 50%. And frankly, companies like ours, we didn't even pursue it because at a 50% tax rate, you honestly cannot make money. Although you're pursuing a casino license in New York City now, tell me why that makes more sense than offering mobile sports betting in New York. Uh, because frankly, the mobile sports betting tax is at the greater than 50%. The guidance that we've seen for the land-based opportunity in downstate New York, you know, that tax rate is going to be somewhere between 25 and 35%. So certainly at those numbers, um, it makes it a little bit easier to get a return on investment. When I follow Hard Rock and the Seminoles, I'm really struck by the fact that you have all these years of challenges and the commercial operators, Las Vegas Sands and, and FanDuel and DraftKings, all trying to come in and get on the ballot in Florida or get a gaming license for Florida. And instead, you have the near monopoly in this state and you're taking the competition to the commercial operators in Atlantic City on the Las Vegas Strip and with this effort to get a casino license in New York. How far does this go? How much should the other operators be worried about what Hard Rock is able to accomplish? Well, I think each company always has to look at their own individual, you know, profit and loss statement. But certainly, you know, the tribe has its sovereignty here in the state of Florida. And that's an amazing you know, opportunity that we have based upon the tribe's history. But when we look at the Hard Rock brand, we're actually in 70 countries around the world. We have huge gaming projects in places like Athens. Literally, next week, I will be with the Prime Minister of Greece, and we're launching a $1.5 billion project in Athens. Uh, we have a project in Barcelona. We're probably one of the front runners in Japan. So, you know, we look at our brand on a global basis. Yes, Florida is a great home base, but certainly the Hard Rock brand's been around for 50 years, and we're real excited about our future. Well, I know a lot of people are excited about rolling the dice on the craps table, too. They keep coming by looking at it. Longingly, Jim Allen, thank you for being thank you here. For you know, uh, Tyler, the sports book opens up tomorrow, and all of these famous people crowding in here to gamble should be a lot of fun. All right, thanks very much, Contessa Brewer. We appreciate it. Coming up, folks, call them Boomtown Problems. How Nashville is racing to keep up with a flood of visitors with prices and luxury to match. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Nashville, of course, known as Music City, but now it is also becoming known as a luxury hotel haven. Hotels are sprouting in the city like never before. More than 90 new ones, adding thousands more rooms in just the past decade alone. CNBC's Carl Quintanilla has an exclusive look as part of a special premiering later this evening right here on CNBC called Cities of Success. Take a look. Nashville's ever-changing skyline. More evidence of the city's rapid economic success. Right now, you're looking at one of its latest additions, the Four Seasons Luxury Hotel. Inside, 235 rooms, including this, the most expensive hotel suite in all of Nashville. Price tag, 10 grand or more per night. This is a great hotel and this is a spectacular room. Dean Stratuli, the developer who built this spacious 2,200 square foot suite and the entire 40-story glass tower, says the hotel industry in this city is experiencing unprecedented growth. This is really a hyper-growth market. Since 2013, over 90 new hotels were constructed in Nashville, adding more than 14,000 rooms. 
And in the last year alone, all that new lodging helped generate over $2 billion in revenue. Not far from the Four Seasons, the spot that sparked the skyrocketing demand for hotel rooms. Music City Center is over five times larger than the former Nashville Convention Center. Charles Starks is the CEO of Nashville's new 2 million square foot convention center that attracts up to half a million visitors per year. We're seeing somewhere in the neighborhood of about a half a billion dollars a year of direct economic impact. Stark says on just the Music Center's opening day back in 2013, 125 large events were pre-booked and attendees reserved over a million hotel rooms through 2024. Music City Center is booking annually about half a million room nights. Certainly as groups look to book and as hotel developers look into the future, they're willing to see that's a positive trend. Back at the Four Seasons, 14 floors below that pricey presidential suite, Dean reveals some of the challenges of doing business in Nashville. When we started this hotel, I started with no laundry, outsource the laundry. Everybody agreed as we started getting ready to start constructions. All of a sudden, someone said, there's no laundry. I said, yeah, we'll do, we, we said we weren't gonna put a laundry in. No, there's no laundry in Nashville. <laughs> Dean's team couldn't find a local laundry service capable of processing the hotel's 3,000 pounds of daily linens. The solution? Outsource the work to Alabama, a journey that takes over four hours by truck round trip every day. But that wasn't the only issue Dean encountered while building his hotel. He says the city also has a serious shortage of skilled labor and not enough building inspectors. The problems they're having is, is a product of their success. They can't move projects as quickly as the market is asking them to push it through. But growing pains aside, Dean says there is no place else he would have rather invested. This is a great city and for the most part is very pro-growth and pro-development. That's something that you don't find everywhere. You then layer in all the things that are really cool about Nashville. Broadway, music, Titans, and all of that put together makes Nashville just a great place to come. Nashville is some kind of hot. Walk down there, you think you're in Las Vegas. Again, you can catch that brand new CNBC special tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Don't miss it, Cities of Success, Nashville. All right, let's check out the futures before we go. As you see over there, S&P and Dow futures are lower. NASDAQ uh, was higher and has just turned a little bit lower. That's your last call for tonight. Thanks for joining us. Shark Tank is next. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.